Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of the podcast is with Peter Stothart. He is an author. He's just written a book, about the assassins of Julius Caesar, really. One of the most infamous political assassinations in history. Uh, he's stabbed by other members of the Senate, jealous of his power or who feared his power. And the reason we're putting this one out today is because this is a, a huge week for anniversaries from the ancient world, the classical world. It's the anniversary of the Battle of Salamis. Apparently, it's not the 2000th anniversary. Apparently, it's the 1999th because the year zero was not a year. So all of my celebratory tweets and thoughts and things are completely wrong. Not for the first time. That's happened. Battle of Gargamela, gigantic battle in which Alexander the Great finally decisively won control of the Persian Empire. As everybody knows, by that extraordinary flanking attack out to the right, then back into the centre, heading for the Persian king himself astonishing act of, uh, of military, it's a decapitation of the enemy, astonishing charismatic leadership by Alexander. What I mean, what a, it's a remarkable battle. Elysia, also the anniversary of Elysia this week, Julius Caesar's gigantic victory in Gaul. At one stage, he was besieging the Gauls and was himself besieged. Again, personal leadership and valour, important to that victory. But the Battle of Philippi, which saw Mark Antony Octavian defeat some of Caesar's assassins. You'll be hearing more about them in this podcast. And because it's all about classical history, this week I want to tell you all about our new podcast. It's called The Ancients. It's with our in-house ancient historian, Tristan Hughes. We call him the Tristorian on History Hit Team. He has got a podcast out about Agrippa, who was kind of the... Well, he was sort of Octavian's right-hand man. That's putting it politely. I think he was sort of the military genius behind uh, the man who had become Augustus. So interesting podcast about him. Great podcast, not just about the classical world, but looking at, for example, the Polynesian seafarers of the Pacific, my personal favourite subject of mine, and so other aspects of ancient history as well. So not just obsessed with the Mediterranean basin. So please go and check out The Ancients wherever you get your podcast. In the meantime, though, let's get back to Peter Stothard, talk about the assassination of Julius Caesar. Enjoy. Hello, Peter. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi, great to be with so many people. Well, it's great to have you here talking about one of the most famous, infamous events in recorded history, the assassination of Julius Caesar. Let's start with Caesar himself. He wasn't the emperor of Rome, was he? What office did he hold at the time of his death? And let's talk a little bit about his rise as well. But start by telling me about exactly kind of the, the power he held when he was killed. He was called dictator for life which uh, was an unusual title for a Roman and worried a lot of his friends who thought that, okay, him being dictator, they'd had dictators before, okay, perhaps being dictator for life, but suddenly they 
some of them started looking around and saying, hmm, maybe he wants to be dictator, not just his own life, but to choose his successor and choose his successor after that. And that to them was basically going back to like having a king. And uh, having a king was the thing which Rome defined itself as not having. And so when a lot of his friends started to see that not only was he extremely powerful, but also wanted to be even more powerful still and choose other people, his sons or otherwise, to be kings. At that point, people started getting very anxious and a plot started to develop. And how did Caesar become dictator for life? Because he was as brilliant a politician as he was a military commander. He was pretty good at both. What advantages did he set out with in life? Was he a man of great wealth or connection at the beginning of his career? He was a man of good connection, but there were many men who had many more connection. He was an extraordinary speaker. We know he was an extraordinary writer, and writers like to think that you can tell something about someone by the way they write, but he was a very, very clear thinker, clear describer, great sort of calm propagandist of, of himself. He really did understand politics and uh, was extraordinarily successful at it, but he was working within a system which couldn't cope with either its own growth, the, the extraordinary power that it gave to people who were conquered provinces. He conquered Gaul, of course, but also it couldn't, it couldn't cope with people who became too powerful to fail. But Caesar's problem was that he'd, you know, he'd conquered Gaul, he'd done everything you possibly could, and, and then the rules said that he had to give it all up because the Roman system checks and balances. It's a bit like you're talking about Trump at the moment. You know, the rules say that if he loses, he has to give up. But sometimes people get very frightened of what will happen if they give up. You know, someone might put them in court, they might try them, they might do things that people don't, that they don't want to happen to them. And so he, they have to keep on going. And that's when Caesar crossed the Rubicon in the famous phrase, brought troops into Italy, which he wasn't really supposed, was not supposed to do. And then there was a civil war against Pompey, famous Pompey, who was actually in many ways not that unlike Caesar. One of them was going to beat the other, and, and Caesar won. And once Caesar had won, he was the most powerful man in Rome, the most powerful man he'd really ever been in, in Rome. And a number of things followed from that. A lot of people had worked with him very closely, and they knew what kind of a man he was, and they worried what kind of a, of a ruler he might be, you know, if, if, if he got even more power than he had. And then there were other people around him who perhaps thought that since they'd fought so hard for, for him over the years, they should have been more rewarded themselves. There were other people who were just jealous that other people had been rewarded. There were people who just were jealous about what Caesar could do, um, whether it was uh, sleeping with their wives or stealing the pet lions that they had planned for, for an entertainment show. He got to a point in his life and in the life of the Roman Republic where people feared that it was only one way he could go, and that was to make himself king and an hereditary monarch. And therefore, people had to decide what, what was the appropriate response to that. Not everybody thought you should kill him, a lot of people thought you shouldn't. And they gave very interesting arguments about whether you should kill someone who you think is going to be a tyrant or not. But enough people decided that they should kill him to kill him. He, phenomenally successful military commander, conquered the whole of Gaul, unimaginable scale of violence there and, and almost genocide. Invaded England twice, invaded Britain twice, wrote about his amazing commander. But when he was dictator of Rome, what did he do? Did he change Rome? What was the domestic policies like within Rome during that period? Well, he didn't have much time as dictator of Rome before they, as dictator for life before, before, before they killed him. He spent a lot of his time planning to do what he was going to do if he'd, if he'd survived on the Ides of March, which was to invade to the east. He wanted to take over Parthia, modern Iran, and, and the big empire over there. He felt that taking Gaul wasn't really enough, and that Alexander the Great, who was his great hero, had won all his laurels and all his money in the east and that you weren't really a superhero unless you'd conquered in the East as well as in the West. 
So most of the time, I think, when, when he was planning his life as di- dictator for life was actually his next military campaign. This group of people that began to want to assassinate him, they, they were just worried about somebody wielding that much power, were they? What alternative system did they have in mind if, if there was one? Could they agree? Well, that was the big problem, of course. They didn't agree. They didn't have any idea of what they wanted to happen afterwards. The notion of consequences of an action, which seems so important to us, most of the ideas, you know, when we talk about what are your policies, you know, why do you do something to, to a modern politician? It's about what outcome do you think is going to come from them? But these are different people. And studying Roman history is an art of tightrope walking. You, you look down one side of the tightrope and everybody seems a bit like us. They do have policies. They are interested in the water supply and the roads and stuff. But also you look down the other side and they're enormously conscious of, of the past, of their honour, of their, of their place in history. What was the right thing to do? They could decide that something was the right thing to do, almost regardless of the consequences. So some of them hoped that once Caesar was killed, everything would go back to normal because they had all got nice jobs. Most of the killers were, were very close to Caesar. They were very powerful in the state. They all had nice jobs set up for next year where they could rule provinces and make money and lead armies and all the things that they like to do. And so they didn't really want to rock the total boat. They just wanted to get Caesar out of the way. And they thought it would all go back to normal. Well, the wiser people said, look, you know, if you have an assassination, you'll get a civil war. Subsequent history showed that, that was often, often the case too, and that you just create a vacuum in which people are going to fight over. And then there was a big argument amongst these very wise men, for the most, for the most part, arguing about what was the right thing to do. Was having a, a dictator so much worse than having a civil war? Which is the lesser of two evils? Which was the most likely to give you a happy, successful life for yourself or for the country? And they argued about this in almost in a sort of philosophical seminar way. And they came up with different conclusions, but enough of them came to the conclusion that Caesar should be killed for him to be killed. In your book, you also have those philosophical debates about assassination, don't you? And you bring it up to the modern day, talk about Macbeth, the discussions within Macbeth about whether it's right to kill a king. And also you have very interesting thoughts about Tony Blair thinking about Saddam Hussein. The first book I ever wrote, one of the most extraordinary times of my time as a journalist, was when I happened to be in Downing Street with um, Tony Blair during, during the Iraq war. It's a long story how that happened, but it did, and I stayed there with him throughout the entire war. Tony Blair was in some ways a Roman politician in that respect, because he believed that just because he could get rid of Saddam Hussein, because the Americans wanted to do it for different reasons, he should do it. So the notion that just because you can, if, you, if something is right and you can do it, should you do it, was for him an important idea. And people said to him, well, why don't you get rid of Mugabe? Why don't you get rid of the Burmese lot? And he said, well, I can't. But if there's something that is the right thing to do that you can do, then you should do it. The consequences of him doing it were catastrophic in, in, in very many ways. You mentioned Macbeth. I mean, Macbeth, Shakespeare got it right from the very, pretty much the very first time the word assassination was used in English, in, in Macbeth where Macbeth is considering killing Duncan. And he says, uh, you know, if the assassination could gather up the consequence within itself, then that, this blow would be the be-all and end-all. That would be over. But of course, it, the blow never is the be-all and end-all. And the blow doesn't gather together the consequences with it. The consequences <laughs> come afterwards, and they're not always the ones that you want. And the, uh, and the assassins of Julius Caesar found this based very much because they had debated amongst themselves what was the right thing to do, whether, for instance, whether civil war was better than living under a tyranny. When it came to it, they had to fight that war and their, their old world was never going to be the same again. What, what they got at the end of it was not only a dictator for life, but Julius Caesar's adopted son, who became the emperor of a whole dynasty. And who, talk, tell me about who these assassins were. We got famously Brutus and Cassius, but they're a whole gang of them, weren't they? Well, they were, yeah. 
the one I chose to go for is, is Cassius Parmensis, his name was, and he was the one who lasted the longest. Because what happened after the assassination was that Octavian, who was Caesar's heir, only a teenager, remember, he was only 18 when Julius Caesar was killed. And nobody expected, his, not, certainly not his adoptive, not his step-parents or his friends or anybody. I mean, no one, no one thought that he would cross the ocean. He was at university in Greece. And when he heard that Julius Caesar had made him his heir, everybody thought he might just come back and try and get some money, possibly. But in, instead, he came back. And as soon as he came back as Caesar's heir, he realised that Caesar's name was the most potent thing he had. And that these soldiers who fought for Caesar really just wanted to fight for another Caesar. They weren't interested in liberty or the restoration of the Republic. They weren't interested in restoring a lot of people, aristocratic toffs to jobs that Caesar had maybe clipped a bit of their power, of their power where they weren't interested in that. They wanted to fight for another Caesar. And, and so Octavian, systematically, in a way which I, which I describe, took off every single one of the people who killed his adopted father. And, and my story is the story of the first assassin he got, and then the, the second and the third, right up till the, the last assassin, Cassius Parmensis, who lasted till 30, it took 14 years. And so looking at it through his, through that lens, allows you to see all the assassins were normally rather neglected. As you say, they just talk about Brutus and Cassius because they're in Shakespeare's play with, with some bit parts for a few others. But it was very important, the, the assassination, that it was a joint enterprise of lots of people. That's what made it politically a runner. And, and they used daggers because, you know, everybody wanted to get a, a, a dagger blow in because that made it a, a corporate political act as opposed to a sort of assassination by a guy running a sword through you in the back alley, which would have been a much better way of killing Julius Caesar, but would, wouldn't have had the political clout that came from, um, you know, 20, 30, 40 of his friends and rivals sticking a dagger into him in the, in the Senate. And each one of those had slightly different reasons. We can talk about what they are. They were, they're the, some of the reasons that, that we can all un, we can understand today, some of them which are jealous of Caesar. They, they, they thought that they were perhaps, why was Caesar so much better than them? I think Brutus and Cassius both had a bit of that in them. Some of them thought that they should have been better rewarded for helping Caesar. Some of them thought that they were just jealous that other people had got almost as good rewards for them for, as for not, and hadn't risked their lives in Gaul for, for Caesar. There were, there were people who just didn't like the idea of anybody being powerful enough to pardon them. Julius Caesar was a great pardoner. He was very, he prided himself on his clemency. He was a bit of a genocidist in Gaul, okay? But when it came to his fellow Roman um, leaders, he was more inclined to pardon them than to kill them. But of course, if you pardon someone who's very proud, they can hate you more than if you, you let them go. Caesar had built up a wide range of personal hatreds from his own behaviour, as well as the general anxiety about the fact that he wanted to make himself a king. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit 
wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. What did the assassins hope would happen next? They hoped that there would be a lot of popular support for them, not just uh, amongst fellow senators, who many of whom shared their dislike and wished that Caesar would go away. And even if they hadn't joined the conspiracy or hadn't been asked, would at least support them. And the most famous of those was Cicero, who you know, uh, who they didn't dare or didn't like the idea of necessarily getting involved in the, the conspiracy. But as soon as he, Caesar was dead, Cicero jumped in and said, this is absolutely wonderful, guys. I love you all. You're absolutely great. Um, where do we go from here? So so that, they were hoping for a lot of that. They they got some. And they were also hoping for a lot of uh, support from the, the ordinary people of Rome, sort of voters, uh, if you like. And down the line, they were hoped that there would be support for soldiers who they believed would fight for you know, the old, the old idea of the Roman Republic and would, would be as worried about Caesar's tyranny as they were. Now, they got some support from the uh, fellow senators, but it was very, and they, they left the, the Senate, they could see that it wasn't fantastically popular. They spread out, they went back up onto the onto Capitol Hill to negotiate with, at that time, Caesar's main man, uh, Mark Antony. But Mark Antony was perfectly happy to negotiate too. They all, they all really wanted a quiet life at that point. And they would very happily just divided up all the good jobs and continued with all the sharing the power that Caesar had had amongst themselves. And so the assassins were quite hopeful at that point. But then it was it was clear. Uh, we're not Shakespeare, famous you know, friends, Romans, countrymen speech. Mark Antony, well, probably some truth in it, not not completely. Uh, it's probably over over uh, overstated. It's sort of play after all. But Mark Antony did see that the people were not as supportive of the assassins as perhaps he thought they might be or they thought they might be. And so he started hedging his bets. But they still did a deal. They all gathered in a, in a temple, Temple of Tellus, with, uh, under a great map of Italy. And they did a, a deal where they said, look, we're not going to praise you assassins. We're not going to say that you did the right thing, but we're not going to pursue you either. And we're going to um, basically pretend that Caesar never happened. And that seemed quite a good compromise. A lot of people liked that idea amongst the, the ruling class, if you like. But the people were a bit nervous about it. And as soon as the teenage Octavian arrived on the scene, it was quite clear that he only had to say, avenge Caesar, and he was going to get a huge amount of, of support. And so Mark Antony, who to begin with was quite dip- diplomatic and was trying to sort of do a deal, and did do a deal with Cicero and the assassins, Mark Antony was, in order to, to represent Caesar's side, was drawn more and more away from diplomacy 
and forgiveness and let bygones be bygones and more and more into a series of vengeful wars and pursuits and pogroms and prescriptions uh, against against all against all the assassins so one man's desire for vengeance dragged the other players in in his wake and so that was the that was then what happened and, and my story is the story of the of the hunt that followed after that so so octavian even as a teenager he arrives with a pretty clear idea of what he wants does he it's not absolutely clear. I, I, I find that a little hard to, be, to, to believe that, that, that he did, though some, some people think that he did. I don't think it's normal. I think most likely is that he came looking to see what the score was. I mean, pretty amazing, you know, 18. He, he, no reason to, to expect this. Or, well, we don't know that he had any reason to expect it. He knew Caesar a, a bit, but not that much. He, and he was the grandson of Caesar's sister, uh, one of Caesar's sisters. He wasn't the only grandson. He got the nod and he came over. And I suspect that what it was the... He smelt the breeze very quickly. He was a young boy and he wasn't trammeled by a whole lot of conceptions about what should and shouldn't be done. He could just see that if you called yourself Caesar and your name was Caesar and his name was Caesar, then he was able to, to take over, to continue where, his, uh, uh, where Julius Caesar had, had to stop. But he was a very canny politician. He proved himself very canny very quickly. And the story then moves on from there. Um, go on. You, you mentioned that the assassins are all hunted down. Some of them were defeated in battle, but others had sort of lonely deaths, did they? I'm a bit of a spoiler alert here, but run through some of the ways in which they were, they were run to ground and, and dealt with. The first assassin to die was a man called Gaius Trubonius. He was a rather sort of scholarly general. It was almost, almost a sort of literary critic. He was a sort of collector of Cicero's um, speeches, but, but he was, he was a, a powerful general. And he had, his, um, he had been promised by Caesar that he would be the uh, governor of Asia. And so he went straight off there to take over his job, which, uh, which Caesar had given him, because part of the compromise was everybody kept the jobs that Caesar had told them that they could have. So he went off to take his. But unfortunately for him, a crazy man called uh, Dolabella, who was a sort of one of, of Caesar's thugs, and who was constantly, spent most of his life, trying to foment revolution so that there would be an end to debt, because he was hugely in debt. So every, every so often he would try and pass laws and rabble-rouse to get all debts cancelled. So he wasn't very popular with the the upper classes, or at least the, the rich upper classes. Anyway, because Caesar had taken a fancy to him, he was going to be the consul, the, the top job after, after Caesar had left for, for, for Parthia. Anyway, Dolabella went off to take his what he thought was going to be his job. He passes by Trebonius, and Trebonius is tortured to death in, in, a, in a way which was ex- absolutely shocking to, to Romans. You had, you had one senator in a room in Greece with a, with a, with a a Sumerian torturer with sort of hot irons and a rack, killing a, an, an, another Roman senator over two days in revenge for the, uh, well, in revenge, who knows? He might have wanted money, he might have wanted revenge, but it was a, it was a br- absolutely brutal assault, which um, the enemies of Mark Antony uh, made a great deal of. And they, um, so Cicero, uh, who was that stage very much with the assassins, made a big attack on, series of attacks, brutal uh, oratorical attacks on Mark Antony, heavily fueled by the torture and death of, of, of the first assassin. So Trebonius was the first assassin to die. And then we have a more formal warfare, don't we? What, talk, talk me through the, the kind of the final stage of, of the, a few of the assassins who actually tried to take on Antony and Octavian in battle. Antony and Octavian were sometimes on the same side and sometimes on different sides. It was, it was, it was a complicated area to get your head around, even at the time. And it's, it's been very difficult for historians ever since. The big battleground was the area of, what is now northern Italy, which was then southern Gaul, which was where Cassius Parmensis came from in, in, in Parma. 
where the ham and the cheese came from then and, uh, and come from now. One of the assassins who was closest to Caesar, Decimus Brutus, who does appear in Shakespeare's play, he had been awarded the prize of being governor of that part of Gaul. So he goes off there to take, to take that. And then Antony, de Antony decides that he wants that job and he's going to take it from Decimus Brutus. The Senate decide, you know, can't really decide what to do. So he ended up with about three or four different armies fighting in disgusting, wet, damp, low-lying mud in, in northern Italy. It was, it was the worst kind of civil war that the Romans, had, who didn't want Caesar to die, had warned against. Because the Romans often won battles pretty easily. The, the most brutal battles that take place were between fellow Romans. And, and a lot of blood was shed in the mud of Parma, where, which was Cassius Parmensis' his hometown. The whole Parma was pretty much destroyed, completely destroyed in a revenge uh, attack by um, Mark Antony's brother. And it was a very, very messy, extremely bloody, very unpleasant. Decimus Brutus tries to escape to join Marcus Brutus and, and Cassius, who were in Greece. He tried to go over land. He's caught by a Gallic tribal chief, and he's killed. God knows how he was killed. And uh, he's, he becomes the second, the second assassin to die. So a mixture of formal violence and torture and sort of assassination. Looking at the assassins as a group, did any, we, we'd mentioned this a bit earlier, but is it possible to see that any of their aims were met? Did it change anything or did it just deliver the Roman world into the hands of an even greater Caesar? Well, that's, exactly what, that's exactly what it did. None of their aims were met, except possibly, I suppose, you could say that Brutus's aims were met since Brutus's aims, as much as we can understand him, was to become the person that we're talking about now. I mean, he was he had an extraordinary sense of his place in Roman history, and he and what was the right thing to do for him, his family, and his place in the universe. I mean, they have a very high view of their high moral tone, if you might say. So, a success for Brutus, but for the rest of them, a disappointment. When is your book out, Peter? October the 1st in Britain and uh, November the 1st in, in the US. And it's called The Last Assassin. Go and get everyone. Thank you very much, Peter, for joining us on this episode of History Hit Live. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. 
if you dare. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.